All right, well, we've been working now. We worked through the first chapter of Ephesians. Now we started these next 10 verses. These next 10 verses are really extraordinary. And like many of the first three chapters actually bring up these massive issues that we cannot just stop. We have to stop and say, well, what is this? What are the implications here? What does this mean? And we looked at, we've looked at the wrath of God. We've looked at predestination. We've looked at being chosen. We've looked at our inheritance that's in Christ, the incredible riches that are found in Christ. And we're going to press on and get into something that I, I'll be honest with you. I, I've, I have scoured the commentaries. I have scoured the internet. I have looked High and low, there is, there is not that deep of a, um, an outlay of this next passage, and I'm going to give you my take on it this morning, okay? It's hard to be adamant. Where the Scripture speaks, we speak. But there's parts of this that are going to be, in some ways, my interpretive view of this particular passage. So let's read. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We have established that. We were dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We looked at that last week. According to who? The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too. Now, he's writing to the church. That doesn't mean everybody in uh, earshot of my voice this morning is there yet. But it's always an open invitation. You too formerly walked or lived in the lust of our flesh. That's just strong desire indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature by nature children of wrath but God being rich in mercy because of his great love which with, with which he loved us even when we were dead did what made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him his resurrection folks is our resurrection Romans uh, 6 5 couldn't be more explicit in this and seated us seated us, now catch this, with him in heavenly places. That's what I want to get to. What does this mean to be seated in heavenly places? That's the question. Now, I will tell you, before we do, remember where we came from. We came from God's wrath. We were under God's wrath. John three thirty six. if you'll remember, we did a three-week series just as a kind of to, up, to just bring you up to speed if you weren't here. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Listen to what John Stott says. Again, one of my favorites of all time. John Stott says this. First, the reason why a propitiation, that's a fancy theological term for just appeasement, if you will, is necessary is that sin arouses the wrath of God. And you, you can, don't miss this. Sin arouses the wrath of God. Sin does. This doesn't mean, as animus fear, that he's likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. No, that's not God. For there's nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. Nor is he ever irascible or malicious, spiteful or vindictive. That's not God. His anger is neither mysterious, now catch this, nor irrational. I cannot say that about me. Sometimes I have things that bubble up out of my heart and they are, if I have a chance to step back, completely and utterly irrational. There are things that you respond to and maybe your spouse just goes, what in the world is going on there. That is completely irrational. God, not so. 
said it's never unpredictable, God's wrath, but always predictable because it is provoked, now catch this, by evil and evil alone. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is pulls apart from ours. What provokes our anger, usually injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. Look, God's wrath is always driven out of his love, his justice, his his perfection. He is dead set against evil. Why? Because it harms his creation. Either you harming yourself or you harming either intentionally or unintentionally those around you. And we can see that in politics. We can see that in We can see that in religion. We can see that all over the board. God's wrath is a steady, unrelenting, unrepentant hatred of what hurts his creation. We were children of wrath. So we've seen three things, really, a progression in these first ten verses of Ephesians 2. We've seen, number one, it defines who we were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. You've been made alive in Christ. But it also shows us exactly what God did on our behalf. What God did to come and make all things new, if you will. And then finally, it tells us where we are now and eventually where we will be. And we'll see that in the last three chapters of Ephesians as well. Well, okay, if all this is true, how then shall we behave? How shall we act? How shall we, what shall we set our hearts upon? Those are good questions to ask. You know, this is not too much different from the Genesis 1 account, just as a sidebar here. If you go back into Genesis 1, you say that everything was formless and void, and God's Spirit was hovering over this, and then all of a sudden He spoke, let there be light, and light exploded on the scene, and then God follows by saying, and it was good. He says that, repeats that refrain six times, and it was good. And it was good, and it was good. You see, you get this meta-narrative right in the beginning, the first couple of verses in Genesis chapter 1, which is God's Spirit is hovering over creation just as He hovered over you if you know Jesus today. It was formless and void. We were dead. Spiritually speaking, we were dead. And yet He spoke, let there be light, and the very light of Christ shone in our hearts And now we have a whole new future. So it's really a Genesis account. Genesis 1, 1, 2, 3, through that first few verses, is a picture, a meta-narrative for exactly what happened to us spiritually. question will always be, has that happened to you spiritually yet? That's always going to be the question. So, but this, this next part, we've, is, this grabs me, and I've always, I've known it, and I've even taught it, but I've thought more deeply about it this last week than I think I've ever thought about it. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. What does that mean? What does that mean? You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Have you ever thought about that? Have you wondered what that means, the implications of that? Have you ever thought about the, the mafioso? Have you ever thought about the mafia? I'm going to draw a parallel, and it's probably a parallel. I would, 
I'm going to guess that's never been preached from any pulpit in the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. Here we have a picture of the mafia. And I'm going to draw a parallel. And in what way am I going to draw a parallel? Well, if you go back to the Godfather and you go back to Don Corleone and all the family, right? The family is there. And so we get a picture of what it's like to have a system of governance that lives within a larger system of governance. Would you agree with that? So if you go all the way back to Sicily and the, the origins of at least the Italian mob, now there are other the mafia families, but there were five fundamental mafia families back in the day uh, that ran rampant through this country. And when you look at that picture, what you get is you get a picture of the family. And there was a whole substructure of, it's like your family within the context of being American, but it, it, it went far beyond their citizenship in America now. In fact, they in many ways reported back to the family. And in fact, they had the Cosa Nostra. You've heard of the Cosa Nostra? This just means our thing in Italian. It's our deal. It's how we operate. It's how we function. It's our thing. And, of course, they had the code of silence or the code of uh, omerta or omerta. And so there was like, you don't speak against the family. And all this is built around what? It's built around a system of governance that happens that precludes or rises above the system of governance in which they live. Now, obviously, are there any differentiations to be made here between the mob and the mafia and the kingdom of heaven. Well, of course they are. They're diametrically opposed. But the way in which they operate is actually somewhat similar. It's, just, it's easy to just say, well, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Well, what does that mean? To, are we literally, physically seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Yes and no. But in some ways, and we'll see this in a second, we are ambassadors of another kingdom. But this place holds many aspects we have rights there were right that if you're part if you were part of the family you had rights you had privileges you had protection you had authority it comes down from up above the godfather said it and once he said it it was set in motion whether that be a hit or whether that be a new racketeering deal, or whether that be bribery, or any kind of prostitution, gambling, everything that they stood for. It was enacted, and in a sense, you could say, if someone was a made guy, he was already part of the family, he was inside this organization, this substructure, if he was inside that structure... He carries the full weight and the authority once the Godfather has spoken... And nothing's going to change that word. It doesn't matter what the emotions were or the feelings. They are subject to what the Godfather says. Now, we don't have the Godfather. We have the Father who happens to be God at the head and at the head of our, uh, of our picture. So I want you to begin to think this morning. We're going to look at some scriptures that maybe will help you view what being seated with Christ in the heavenly places means. You have power that you don't know about. You have authority that you don't know about or may not be familiar with. And let's go back into the text. So let's look at this legally. 
Legally, you know, the Amplified, I believe, says that we are jointly seated with Christ in heavenly places. And that seat is not that God is here and Jesus has a big throne here and he's seated actually at the physical right hand. It's a picture of authority. In other words, Jesus has been given all dominion. It's what we got at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Everything was created by him and for him. You mix this with Colossians 1 and 2 as well. Everything created by him and for him and Jesus is head over all things including the church. And now we are co-heirs, as we've seen with our inheritance. We are adopted into the family. And what is it? Well, we're part of the very thing. So we actually have access to what Jesus has access to. Jesus said something similar when he said, everything that you've seen me do, you're going to do these things and even greater things shall you do. He's beginning to try to instill in his followers that they're going to have the authority that he bought for them having gone to the cross and been raised to the right hand of the Father, a place of authority. So when Paul says, you now are seated with Christ in heavenly places, you have a level of authority that most of us, let's just be honest, are, really don't walk in very often, but we have access to it. I'm going to give you a story. Back when I was at uh, Rice University in Houston, when I was in school, and, and I had just come to Jesus, and I knew nothing. I really knew nothing. Not suggesting that I know everything. Now I don't, but I, I mean, I'm still on a journey, but I really knew nothing back then. But I did know that I was convict, I was absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, and I started to read my Bible, and so I was taking a particular class at the university, and uh, it was a gender roles class. I have no idea why I was in that class, but I was, and I had an aggressively feminist uh, professor, and she, uh, as part of his class, so we had a, a big paper we had to write. And it was stupid what I did, but I, I, mean, I was just, you know, I was like, I was just gung-ho. I was going to share everybody, Christ with everybody. So my only source of my entire paper that I wrote was the Bible. And that didn't go over so well with her. So all of my bibliography, you know, just Bible, 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 New King, you know. All that. And uh, she called me into her office, and she was furious. I mean, she was furious. She sat me down and she said, explain this absurd paper that you've turned in. I mean, this is ridiculous. And I started, I don't even remember what I said, but she just got more and more angry. And all of a sudden, and I didn't know much, but all of a sudden I just felt like this isn't even her that's talking. It almost felt like there was in some way a presence that was talking through her. It was her voice. It was her. It just didn't seem to be her. And it just, it was, it was overpowering. I was sitting there in her office. I did not know what to do. She's going to fail me from the class. I'm starting to think, well, you know, what am I going to do here? It doesn't matter if I fail. Jesus is going to take care of it. You know, I had all these aspirations. And I was just, man, I was ready to go. And then I thought, and I didn't know if it was a proper application. And I wasn't thinking of this particular verse. But I had read somewhere where you can, you know, bind what's on you know, bind on earth what's bound in heaven and loose on earth. And, and, and so this path, and I understand there are wide, wide-ranging interpretations of exactly what that means. That's speaking of the laws. That's speaking of, trust me, I know, I've done a lot of search. But at that time, that was me. And so I knew Jesus cast out devils, so I'm going to cast a devil out of this professor. <laughs> and I, ha- I was ready to roll. So I, you know what? I thought, well, maybe I sh- probably just shouldn't stand up and shout it out because I don't know necessarily what's in there. But she began to get more and more angry. And I'm talking volatile. And so I put my hand like this over my mouth. And I just, I just began to say, Lord, in Jesus' name, 
I don't know what spirit, it's what we read here, you know, we were, what, the prince of the power ever, the spirit that is now working and the sons of disobedience. Theologians disagree on whether that's a spirit, just a general kind of spirit of the age or whatever, but there was a powerful spirit. I'm not saying it was a demon or a collection of demons, but I'm just saying there was a powerful spiritual force behind her words. That was evident to me. And I just said, you know, in Jesus' name, I just bind that spirit of whatever it was. And I, it, but something came to my mind, and I, and I just began to pray that. And it, as God is my witness, if you're a guest here, you'll have to, you, can, you, you don't have to believe this, but if you're part of the family, you have to believe it. No. So <laughs> she, I'm not exaggerating, the moment I began to speak that, and I was speaking out loud, but under my, kind of under my breath, but out loud, the moment I began to speak that, and she said, and and uh, and you know you are it's as if I'm not exaggerating the story and this has happened to me numerous times since then she, she really it's like she all of a sudden all the air had gone out of what she was doing and uh, anyway she let me rewrite the paper I rewrote it she gave me like a B or something and I went on from the class so you think not a big deal about I don't know, it was the following semester or maybe two semesters later, and I hadn't seen her again. She passed me in her class, and she, she was really not confrontational after that at all towards me. But a good year later, semester later, I can't even remember, uh, I was walking across campus, and uh, I heard, Jeff, Jeff, and I, and I kind of looked around, and here she came, and she came walking towards me, and I'm like, who is, who is this, you know? Uh, most of the girls at Rice had hairy legs, but anyway, she didn't have hairy legs. <laughs> I should say, Lord, I'm so sorry. But anyway, she came walking towards me, <clears throat> and, uh, and she, she walked up, and, and I said, oh. And then I recognized that it was the professor, and she came up very close, and she looked me right in the eye, and she said, our encounter in my office has forever changed my life. Now, what do you do with that? And that was as far as it went. She turned around, and, and I never saw her again. I don't know where she is. I don't know what she's doing. I can't, you know, it's a story. But it, it felt like I was, I had authority. It felt like in Christ's name there was a spirit. It's not just, hey, I'm trying to convince my buddy and to come to church with me. and As if it's some powerful power of persuasion that we have if we get nothing from this first theological aspect of the chapters one and two it's like we were dead it takes the spirit of the living God coming down confronting the very powers of the enemy itself and changing the way the mind views the world the Bible says that we have the mind of Christ Paul told the Corinthians you have the mind of Christ this powerful and we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. And I think sometimes we think of the heavenly by and by will be one day, but now we just kind of make do as we can. And it's really not, our lives are really not that much more powerful or different or anything else than anybody else that walks the world. We just kind of believe differently. Look, you, we cannot look at life that way. Otherwise, you will sit and you won't look that much different. But if you begin to understand that you have power, authority, in the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that did that. It's the spirit of the living God. It had nothing to do with me other than for that moment 
I asked the question, I leave it to your own judgment, but was, what, did I have the opportunity to be a conduit to something that's extraordinarily powerful? I would say yes. His name's Jesus. I had another friend uh, at Rice when I was there, and he played uh, on the football team, and we kind of got to know each other, and uh, name was Brent, and Brent was a, uh, an engineer. He was a brilliant guy, I mean, really smart. And Rice was known as one of the top three engineering schools in the country, MIT and I think Stanford maybe, but one of the top three engineering schools in the country, at least at the time. I don't know how it is today. Uh, but he went on, and he could have done whatever, and, and even not, he was running a huge refinery, I mean, all this stuff, but he felt called to go into a Muslim country, um, and he did, and he went as a missionary, and he's got some extraordinary stories from the mission field, extraordinary stories. Now, you'd say, well, this guy's a crazy, you know, he's, a, he's one of those fanatics, and all. Brent's just, hey, how you doing, you know? I mean, Brent's more kind, gentle, sweetheart of a guy, he just is. And I said, well, give me, give me a story from the mission front. I mean, just give me something. And I had him come, and he actually shared this with a group. This was years ago uh, with a men's group. And uh, it, you have to have him tell it. Maybe you don't trust me that much, but, boy, if Brent walked in, you'd say, I trust that guy. You just, there's something about him. You just, there's no weirdness about him. Some of these stories you feel like come from weird people. This is just an engineer, right? So he's there while I'm there, and I'm sharing, and we had a group of, I don't know, 50 or 60 people, and obviously the women were all on one side, and the men were all on the other side, which is natural in, in, a, in a country, in most Arab countries. And he said, and I, and I was speaking through an interpreter, and I was preaching, and at the end, uh, a man came over, and he goes, he goes, please, you have to help me, you have to help me, my wife is crazy, and uh, don't shake your head. Uh, and he said, well, what is it? And she goes, uh, she has uh, spirits or something. Please, please. And his wife was over here, and he came, as he began to approach her to pray for her, she fell to the ground, and she began to writhe like a snake and began to hiss and began to, you know, and all these voices came out that he said, this, and, and this is good old Brent from Texas, you know, well, Jeff, I just don't know what the... I just don't know if those voices could come out of a little lady like that. You know, well, it, was just, it was just very strange for him. And she began to slither along the ground, and, and he said, and I looked down, and she was wrapped around my leg, hissing. And I'd never been really around this kind of thing because, you know, I don't know that Brett had that much of a charismatic background. <laughs> you know, you don't deal with that in some other places. But he said, so I just... Uh, I just uh, told that spirit to be gone in, in Jesus' name. And he said, if I wasn't an engineer, I wouldn't be able to help describe what happened next. She, un she unwound from my leg. She levitated, and she shot back across the room, backwards, above the ground, and hit the wall. And she got up, and she was well. Well, Brent, I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know if I'd have believed it if I hadn't seen it with these own two eyes of mine. You know, good old Brent. He goes, I'm an engineer. I'm just telling you, force and gravity and all that, it was all superseded by whatever happened there. And he was telling the story. And uh, so the question is, 
Is there a spiritual realm? Well, you can't even get into this Bible. How are you? I don't believe in the, I'll go with the Bible, but I don't believe in devil and all that kind of Satan and all that, and all that spiritual stuff. Look, you cannot. It may make you uncomfortable. Of course it does. It makes me uncomfortable. You read the New Testament and you see Jesus. And at various times, spirits were cast out of people. And they became, it, the spirit was hovering over these people. And God and Jesus was the light of the world. He says, behold, I am the light of the world. And these spirits came out of people and they were in, the Bible says, in their right mind. And they would be closed and they would go about their lives. What does it mean to be seated with Christ in heavenly places? Well, in part, it means that you have the legal authority now over the darkness of this world. Does that mean we do it well? Does it mean these are, these are uncomfortable topics for me? I, I'm just telling you, let's read the Bible and you'll see story after story. That's what this is about. Paul is trying to get their attention here. You have privileges, you have protection, but you do have authority. You do have you do have power. Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five. Many of you will know this pretty well. 2 Corinthians 5. We'll start here in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's the whole thing. Ephesians 1 was just in Christ, in Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ. You're an, you know, in Christ. Now Paul takes up this in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, okay? All these things are from God who reconciled to himself, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not the Godfather, but the Father who is God is now sending us on a mission of reconciliation, we are reconcilers. Once you come to Christ, you become reconciled, and now you go back into a dark, hurting world with the spirit that is in you, and you begin to hover over the lives of people around you that God puts in your path. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. Of course he's the light of the world, and he says, now you're the light of the world because I live inside of you. Hover over people, care for people, invite people over for dinner that will never be able to repay you. Get involved in people's lives. Use whatever gift it is. That's what we'll see in the latter part of these 10 verses. You become God's workmanship. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what Paul's saying is we are ambassadors. Now, what is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone that goes and has the authority of the home country he then goes into another country and takes residence there and is a representative of another country. And Paul's using that very language here. We are not supposed to be at home here. Yes, I'm an American. Yes, I'm a Californian. Yes, I'm a La Quintaite. Yes, I'm a, all these things. I have residency here to some degree, but it's tent dwelling. 
It's not a permanent abode for me. I carry the power, the authority, and the word, the protection from another kingdom, and I'm bringing it down here now. I live first and foremost as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven because I've been what? I've repented, I've been baptized for the forgiveness of sin, and now I have the creator living on the inside of me. That is powerful, folks. We are ambassadors of Christ. It's been given us. Now we take the word of reconciliation. You can be reconciled to God. People say, well, you know, how'd you get into the ministry? I just, I just, nothing else even turns me on at all to sell anything. I guess my personality is a salesperson. I don't know. But I'm like, I can't find anything, and I'm certainly not selling it. It's a free gift. But you get the point. I cannot find anything that I can get as passionate about as I can about people being reconciled to the creator of the universe. Their lives can be made new. And God can look down and say, behold, it's good. Not that it's fallen. It's tragic. It's evil. It's dark. No, it's full of light. It's available to all who will heed the message of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 11. We have to have this mentality. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place that he was to receive for an inheritance. The same language is here. Abraham is a forerunner of the very pattern that you will walk. Moses was a forerunner of the pattern you will walk. All these were meta-patterns, meta-narratives. They're big pictures of how the patriarchs walked. And as you walk into that, Romans 4 says the same. If we walk in the footsteps of Abraham... So he obeyed by going to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, do you understand? If God had told me, I told Judy Vosser, I don't know if she's here, but a dear friend of mine, and I, it was Laura, I was driving down Interstate 10 the other day for coming back from somewhere, and I looked over and I just saw kind of the church at the red door. Well, UCR, but I saw church at the red door and I saw the, the little white things swooping up and I looked over there and it just hit me. I'm going, if you'd have told me 30 years ago, that I'd have been in a pulpit, that I'd have, that I'd have been walking a, a walk out with a family like you, I'd have gone, you're crazy. God has to, you don't have to know everything. You're on a need-to-know basis. You've heard me say that before, but God, if God showed you everything he wants to do with your life, I would have messed it up badly. And yet, he's got this incredible purpose. It's a place that I will show you. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in what? Tents. Now, why is that relevant? You can either say, okay, this is the old, you can treat this world like it's your oyster, you own this land, this money is yours, this house is yours, this, I have, this is all mine, or you can be a tent dweller. You can be someone that's ready to move and go at the, any wind of the Spirit in your life. That's why Jesus said those who are filled with the Spirit, they're like the wind. You don't know where they're coming. You don't know where they're going because they're tent dwellers. They're, uh, they're open to the voice of the Lord as he directs them. See, this was the path that Abraham walked and the path that we should walk. He lived in tents. So, and now go, go on forward to uh, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 11, now jump down to 14 through 16. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a what? Country of their own. 
It's like originally, and I, eventually the mafia got their own identity and their own independence, but in the early days, I'm sure it was, there was a pretty heavy link but back to Sicily. And they were seeking a country. They're, they were sent from another country, in a sense, and now they were establishing a form of rule. Now, granted, it was brutal form of rule. Our rule is very different. We're not in, up to racketeering and prostitution and gambling and, and bribery and, and hits. Ours, our culture is very different. We're called to come in and love and to serve and to lay down our lives as a sacrifice as ambassadors of reconciliation. So our, our, our best, our view is the world is that we want you to be reconciled to Christ so that love permeates and you come to life. Uh, the mafia took away life. We're there to give it. So we're absolutely the opposite, but the structures in many ways are the same. So it says, for those who say things, make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. Do you view your life here as that? Or do you view this, well, this is, you know, you only get one round, you know, you only got one life, you better live it well while you're here. That is not the attitude we have. It cannot be the attitude we have. We're seeking a country of our own, and it is the kingdom of heaven. And in many ways, we are already seated there but we're not there yet. That's what George Ladd calls the already, but the, the not yet. So as we look forward, we say, look, we're called to do, to see things exactly as the home country sees them. As an ambassador, I can't go over there and say, well, this is what my president told me, or this is what, uh, you know, I was told to say, but here's my opinion. Here's my view on America. Here's, my, here's the view I have. No, it has to be consistent. And let me tell you something. If the Godfather in the mafia says, do this, and you go around, do an in run around and do something different, what's that mean for you? Jesus is a little more filled with grace. There have been often times that I feel like I didn't represent home country very well in this world and he's extended me an amazing amount of grace you got one chance in the mafia how many chances have you had with the creator of the universe how long have you wanted to rule and reign over your own life and not given it back to God the father so there's another way in which this is like a marriage you know the bible talks uh, similarly about a marriage we are in a sense also married to the kingdom's king. It's a strange dynamic. We're both co-heirs. We're seated with Christ, but we're also married to Jesus, the church and the bride of Christ. What happens when you marry in? Well, what happens? Well, you, became, you become co-owner, if you will, of the assets. In the kingdom, there are no prenups. You have all access to what Jesus has access to as a co-heir, as an inheritor, as someone who is already jointly seated with Jesus in heavenly realms. That is so hard to believe, isn't it? Oh, it's nice, you know. Let me just, Lainey did this. Thank you, Lainey. Beautiful job with the stage. But could you just build me an ivory tower up here? Me and my ivory tower theologizing here this morning seated with Christ in heavenly places. No, there is an absolute reality to it. 
We have to walk into it. Believe it. Believe what Jesus purchased for us. And then you won't say, well, I've never, you know, led anybody to Jesus. I don't really think about reconciling the world. I don't really, it's not really a concern of mine. I'm not a tent dweller. Well, look, this is what Paul's trying to tell us. Be a tent dweller. Don't drive your stakes in too deeply. If he calls you somewhere, go. If he tells you to give, give. If he tells you to, if he tells you to go love on that person that may not be very lovely and you don't really want to spend time with them, spend time with them. Lay down your life. It's powerful. So Jesus practiced and demonstrated this while he was on the earth. And I'm going to take you a few places as we close here this morning. I'm going to take you to a few scriptures that now I think if you have this as a backdrop, a, uh, if you can get a, a grid in your mind about, okay, seated with Christ, I have authority and power and protection and all this stuff is, is with Christ and now I have it. Okay, how do I behave? What is it? And then you go back and listen to what Jesus said. You go, okay, now I understand what he's saying. It was really hard to understand, but now I understand. So let's look at, number one, John 5, verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. Listen to this language. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me, the Father God. I seek the Father God's will. He sent me into this place. Of course I'm a tent dweller. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I'm a tent dweller. I'm down here on mission. I'm not part of this. I'm of it, but I'm not part of it. I, I, I live here, but I, I, I don't have the same flavor as the world. That's what he's trying to get to here. You're not like the ones who have the spirit of disobedience all over them, that, where they laugh the same things that the world laughs at, and they, they think the same thoughts, and they don't think anything about jumping into bed with anybody. I mean, just the whole, the whole thing is a, is a restructuring of the way that we think. We think like home country thinks. Does that happen overnight? No. It's called sanctification. We've talked about that at length. But he said Jesus didn't have to be sanctified. He was already set apart from the beginning. I don't seek my own will. I seek the will of him who sent me. And then, of course, this interaction he has with Nicodemus. This is an awesome thing here. Chapter 3, John chapter 3. I'm just going to read through this a little bit. Now, with this as a backdrop, now listen to the language and you'll go, oh, yeah. Okay, now that makes sense. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 1, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. I wonder why. He didn't want to be seen, of course. Now, he says, Rabbi, he, he's dipping his toe in. He, he knows he's different, but he's not, willing to, he's not willing to bet the farm on it yet. So why don't you, let's do this thing at night. He says, now, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him and Jesus said well truly I say to you unless one is born again he can't even see the kingdom of God what is what is the access to being seated with Christ in heavenly places being born again it's a metaphor it is a metaphor that Jesus used one time and what it is it's like you're being completely reborn 
Well, Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, come on, Nicodemus. That's what I would say. Jesus had to just go, oh, Jesus. He said, truly, he says, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. They're tent people. They're not trying to make their, their whole world is not about this world. It's about, uh, they're seeking a country that they, they can call their own. They're seeking a city that has foundations. Nicodemus says, well, I, I just don't, I don't get it. How can these things even be, Jesus? And he said, well, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. You don't accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how will you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? Are you, see where he's saying? Does it see the juxtaposition that he has here? You're just, this is all, you're all earthbound, Nicodemus. This is about, this is about, now we're talking seated with Christ in heavenly places. Look, look, this is amazing, Nicodemus, but you have to get a hint of it, and you can't even see what I'm talking about unless the Spirit comes down and, and takes residence in you. That's being born again. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Jesus said, I, I, look, when you, when, this is so hard to communicate. Because why? Because it's so hard for me to understand. And yet in ways it's simple to understand. Jesus, Jesus is down here going, look, I know you guys are all in the temporal plane. You're all so focused on this. I'm from a place. I've descended. I've ascended. Look, I'm telling you of things that you can't even see unless you're born again. This won't make any sense to you at all. Listen to what Jesus says that also in John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus says, my kingdom, as he's talking to Pilate, is not of this world. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus said, well, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So many of you may say, okay, okay, that's good for Jesus. All right? He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah, the Christos. He was the anointed one. That's good for Jesus, but I'm just little old me. And I go to church, and I, I do the things that I can, but I don't know about all this. I mean, what you're talking about now, I, I don't know if that's for me. And we have a long history that there's been the, the layman out here and somehow the laity, as if the laity had any more power than you potentially could have. Jesus, yeah, but okay, now this is Jesus way up here, and we're way down here. Listen to what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer, prayer as we close down. John 17, verse 13. Listen to his language here. This is important. How can we say, okay, Jesus had it. Okay, good for Jesus. But how about us? He says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that you may have my joy made full in themselves. Look, 
That's why I started. I wanted to start with that song this morning. I know it was a little has a little rock and roll to it, but that joy. He wants you to have that kind of toe tapping joy. Hopefully that you had during that first song, that first worship song. Joy. I want your joy to be full. It says, I have given them your word. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And the world has hated them. Do you expect to be loved for this message? Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, Father, but to keep them from the evil one. And then listen to what he says. They are not of the world, my followers. Even as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then listen to this culmination. He says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, you'd say, well, we were in the world and then we got saved, but now we're just still in the world. You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You, you are a co-heir. And now what does he do? God says, okay, your work's not done. I am going to send you back down to earth. Now, he could when you came to Jesus, he could have just taken your life. You get born again, and then you just immediately go to heaven. Some people say, well, I wish that would have happened. You know, boy, could I, I've, I've had a lot of struggles, and, and this is, life's difficult. Maybe some of you right now, life is extraordinarily difficult. I just wish God would just take me. He says, wait a minute, you're down here. I'm sending you back into the world as an ambassador to be a representative of a whole different kind of way of doing life called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. If I still have you breathing down here, then there's purpose in it. Your task, to find that one thing. City slickers. <laughs> You thought that was going to be the Bible, didn't you? No, it was city slickers. It's <laughs> that one thing. What are, what are you here for? Do you get that? Is that powerful? Look, Church of the Red Door wants to see you begin to f- new wine, your new wineskin, to flow out of you, not to keep it to yourself. New wine to be pressed and flowing out of your very spirit as an ambassador of the living God. That's what it means to be seated with Christ. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places, but you're also sent back down into the world. And if you get that, your life is going to change. Look, your life changes when Jesus comes and takes residence in you, but your life really begins to change when you begin to walk out the calling for which God has called you. What do we learn in Ephesians 1? Before the foundations of the earth were laid, you were chosen. That's too glorious for me. If that's true, we're doing the smartest thing on the planet right now, gathering, thinking, and being intentional, and talking about feeding the poor, and talking about helping you know, prisoners' kids, and talking about, I know we have a, a precious um, ministry guy here today from India. Rich Frazier had one from Nigeria last week. Look, all, we are doing really wise. You're smart to be here. If this is all just a bunch of fairy tale stuff, then you're crazy. You are crazy. But I'm the head of the line of the crazies. So new wine. Let's close with this worship song. I want you to think about these words. All these songs that, I, that are chosen have purpose in them. And they relate to the message, and then we'll close.